Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have met this evening as something of the fellowship of the weary. And uh, I confess, I felt myself much more prepared for the morning worship and even our Sunday school than I am to do much of a a stirring exposition in the book of Jeremiah. But I'm going to do my best. Um, Again, we're involved in a passage in Jeremiah chapter 9 that is filled with a lot of difficulties. Um, To know who's speaking, that's one difficulty. Uh, to understand something of this, the raw emotion that we find uh, that runs through the section uh, and the change of emotions. Sometimes we can confront a God who seems just to be outraged at the sinfulness and the rebellion of his people. Uh, sometimes the note is not outrage but deep sadness, the sense of God being betrayed by a people who should love him and have remained faithful uh, to him and did not. Um, and there's almost a sense in which God is saying that judgment is a reality that absolutely must must occur, but it's like the last option on on the board. And you know, you, re- you realize that what's at stake here is the loss of the land. The people are going to be taken away into captivity. They're going to be exiled from the land that God had promised to their fathers. And again, this is part of God's covenant commitment to Abraham. Again, remember, it was God's remembrance of his promises to Abraham that stirred him up to take note of the pain and suffering and oppression that the people, Abraham's descendants, were experiencing in Egypt to bring them out and uh, to bring them on a journey that ultimately had at its end the possession of the land. And yet the people were so rebellious and so stiff of neck and hard of heart in the matter of the golden calf. God was just going to simply wipe them off the face of the earth. But of course Moses intercedes and God renews his commitment to the people to go with them, to lead them to the land. And yet when it comes time that they're about to enter the land and the spies go up into Canaan and they come back with an evil report that we're we're just dead meat for these giants. We're grasshoppers before them and they did not trust God to give them what he said he would give them, the land, the people were too mighty and would that we had died in Egypt, would that we went back to Egypt and uh, God says this is an unbelieving people and uh, they, they, they think they're going to die in the wilderness so they will die in the wilderness and so 40 years they wandered until that unbelieving generation was uh, was uh, went to uh, uh, they perish in the wilderness and then with a, a, the second generation a generation that had learned to trust God in the wilderness a generation that had learned uh, as the book of uh, Deuteronomy says that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God to learn that they should worship the Lord their God and him only shall they serve who learned that they were not to tempt the Lord but they were to submit to the Lord all those things that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness um, they learned in the wilderness through the temptations that they experienced so that uh, they were prepared to go into the land that's largely a people committed to follow the Lord and to be obedient to the Lord and um, that didn't last very long uh, they didn't fulfill the uh, work that God had given them to do in purging the land from the wickedness of the Canaanites. They made compromises. They uh, were reluctant to engage in war when they could all avoid it. And uh, they uh, ended up 
uh, instead of being light to the nations that surrounded them, being corrupted by the nations that surrounded them, and the nations that really still remained within uh, the, the Philistines, the, the Moabites across the river, the Ammonites, the rest of the crowds of uh, those who were worshippers of, uh, of idols. Um, and um, instead of being a light to them, and again, those were like Abraham's kin through uh, well, the Edomites were, and uh, you know the Moabites and the Ammonites were the uh, also kin. Uh, instead of uh, destroying them, God said they're not to go to war with them, but they're to uh, yet be a light to them. That's part of the, the, their calling. They, they failed in that calling. And, and one of the things that happens when God they fail in their calling is that God says they will be judged. And he will judge them in a variety of ways. And the ultimate way is the loss of the land. And it stands to reason. Why did they receive that land? Well, because the iniquity of the Amorite had become full. God said the people that occupy that land are so wicked in even their religious practices, uh, causing their children to be burnt, to be sacrificed unto demons, unto idols. And... uh, Leviticus says that the land itself would vomit out its inhabitants. The land itself couldn't bear to sustain these people and the wickedness of their ways. Just again a bold metaphor to speak of just how horrifically wicked this that uh, generation of Canaanites were. And uh, the Israelites were to uh, um, expunge them from the land and they, they were to possess the land. But now if the, if the Israelites begin to do the things the Canaanites did and live as badly as the Canaanites lived, then what's the sense of wicked people? That's just another generation of wicked, wicked people. And God says something must be done. Something must be done. And we're in a section in Jeremiah where God is saying something must be done. And what must be done is this judgment of exile must come. And God is in a sense justifying what he's about to do. And he's justifying what he's about to do in a way that is very hard and difficult. Where there's a lot of mixed motives it would seem. And something of an ambivalence. Something of a torn between two things. Something of a, of a, of a conflict that God's experiencing. Something of a divine dilemma. This is a God who passionately loves his people. Passionately loves their fathers had a relationship with them that is hard to give up. How shall I give you up? Is what God said about the northern kingdom in the book of Hosea. And how is he going to give them up now? It's not easy. Again, these were the people that were the descendants of a generation that was betrothed to him in the wilderness. God had a love affair with them. They were his bride. He took them to be his own. And there was that love relationship that they had violated that loving relationship. God was the jilted lover. And it was, you know, again, I think one of the things that we ought to see is that what fuels the relationship of God with the nation of Israel in his covenant with them is this passionate love. That's the thing that fueled it from the beginning. And that's something that God, from God's side, he never relinquished. The hope he had for this people uh, and again, I know that God is God. He knows, the, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what was going to happen. There's no sense in which he's disappointed or surprised. I know all of that theologically. But God presents himself to us as one who does what he does, not willingly, not with a heart of malice, not with the desire to see these people suffer. 
As though they're the objects of his justice, they're also the object of his love. In another sense, there is that conflict. I think you see something of it right in the beginning of the covenant relationship as it's expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's listen to a couple of passages in Deuteronomy just to get a sense of this combination of divine love and justice. What uh, Paul calls the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Uh, The book of uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 7. What fuels the covenant relationship is the love that God had for their fathers. And... um, it says, because you listen to these rules, uh, this is verse 12. I'm sorry, let's back it up to verse 6. Back it up to verse 6. For you are a people holy to Jehovah your God, or Yahweh your God. It's going back to the old days, calling it Jehovah, right? Yahweh your God. Uh, Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you. He betrothed himself to you. This is a word that setting his love upon them is an idea. um, It's not the usual word for love. It's a word that expresses that he he, he bound himself to them. Uh, sort of like uh, cleave to your wife uh, leave father and mother cleave to your wife the Lord bound himself to his, this people he cleaved, clung to this people he made this people his people in whom there was this relationship of, of, of intimacy and, and unity and, and commitment so he set his love on you and chose you in love he chose you clinging to you he chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because Yahweh loves you. That's the usual word for love. He loves you from the heart, from the depths of his soul. He loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But you see this whole matter of God entering into covenant commitment to them in love requires a reciprocation of love. We love because he first loved us. And his love should bring that reciprocation. The fact that he would be their God. The fact that he would condescend to them. The fact that he would bring them out of Egyptian bondage. The fact that he would give them the land grant in Canaan. These were all benefits and graces and gifts that God freely bestowed upon them. But what happens when you give your kids on Christmas Day <laughs> uh, boxes after boxes all wrapped up of gift after gift after gift after gift and they say ho oh, hum, who cares and uh, you know they're razzy they give you the Bronx cheer and there's no sense of responsibility to run to mommy run to daddy and say thank you mommy thank you daddy I really love you and I appreciate you for the gifts that you, you've given see gifts in the ancient world as in the modern world it presupposes there would be some reciprocation Again, not something meritorious, but something that would express the reality that we feel grateful. And the people of Israel should have had that commitment to the Lord. They would keep. He 
keeps covenant and steadfast love with you, and you're to keep covenant and steadfast love with him. He repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So if you turn and you hate him, and you turn and you dismiss him, and you turn and you disregard him, and you turn and you ignore him, God is a God who will not take that kind of treatment on the part of the people, even the people whom he's loved, even the people whom he's entered into covenant with, and he's gifted, gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. If they repay him in that way, he will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay him to his face. You should be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. They have a responsibility to keep covenant with God. To hear his words, to obey his words, to bend their will to his will, to follow him, to be instructed by him. And if they will not do those things, it shows they hate him. And if they hate him, God's going to repay. That's a simple reality. It's love that drives this. But again, it's the love of a husband to a wife that's driving this. What happens when a husband takes a wife and he's passionate towards her? He's jealous over her. That's my wife and I will not have her share her with anyone else. We have this special uh, relationship that uh, I cleave to you and you cleave to me um, and no one else. And that relationship is betrayed. And that relationship is uh, adulterated. Well, usually it ends up in the law court in the midst of a lot of bitterness. Well, God says this is a relationship that's going to end up in the law court. He uses the, the thing about divorce from Deuteronomy 24 in chapter 3 of the book, having spoken of the marriage relationship in chapter 2. This is heading to divorce court. And this is heading to divorce court in the way that there's the Babylonian invasion that's going to take the people away. They're going to lose their land. And yet what happens in the law court when we have divorces today? Bitterness. It's a hateful thing. There's never pleasant divorces. God says, I'm a litigant in this matter in which I'm not bitter. And I don't hate these people. I'm a, it's hard for me to give them up. It's difficult for me to do what absolutely is necessary to do. But yet it is necessary to do it. And again, there's a couple of things in this whole section that is repeated. A couple of things that's highlighted. There are key phrases that come at us very frequently. And we mentioned it before in chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 5 and verse 29. We have reference to what we find in chapter 9 and verse 9. And that's where we are. We're in chapter 9, by the way. So turn to her, if you will, in your Bible to chapter 9. I'm going to make some comments about chapter 9. And uh, again, we have to say something about something. And again, most of the problems of the difficulties that I mentioned are really in this poetry part. And when you come to the prose part in verse 12, uh, things get a little bit clearer. But I do want to say something about this poetry part, because part of the poetry part is what you find in 5.9 and 5.29. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh. And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And the answer is, yes, you shall. This is necessary for God to be God. You lost it for some reason? Nine, nine, uh, nine, nine. Shall I not punish them for these things? Declares Yahweh. Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? That repeats what's found in 5.9 and 5.29. Okay? So that is something of an inclusio. That's something of uh, all this material is God's justifying the fact that his 
punishment of the people and the way of the Babylonian captivity, though it's nothing he delights in, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as Isaiah, as Ezekiel says. Yet it's, it's something for God to be God, for God to fulfill his words, the covenant curses as well as the covenant blessings. This judgment must come. And yet it's not an easy thing. It is a dilemma. Because again, he passionately loves his people and he cannot give her up to her enemies lightly. And yet he's a just God. And he has his own honor to be concerned about. And he has the honor of his word that's at stake. And an interesting thing, he even has the, the good of his people at heart. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, there's, there's going to be a return. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's going to be a return. But the present state of things is intolerable. The present state of things cannot stay as it presently is. God must judge. Because there's no alternative. Verse 7. Therefore thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do? What else can I do? There's no other option. There's no other alternative. What else can I do? Because of my people. Really, because they are my people. They're my dear people. And because they are still my dear people, what else can I do but send this judgment with the end of refining them? with the end of testing them. So ultimately he has a good end in, in, in view. But the present generation must be taken away. Just like that first generation in the wilderness had to perish. This is a generation that's going to go to Babylon and a lot of them are going to come back. And those that come back are the chastened. Those that have come back are the refined. Those that have come back are the ones that have been tested in Babylon. And they're going to come back not to be idolaters, not to be unfaithful, but to be a people who largely will render faithfulness to their covenant God. And then another phrase that we find is uh, in verse 3. Uh, let's read it. Uh, it says, They bend their tongue like a bow, and so this, they, they use their tongue like an implement of war. Uh, they use their tongue uh, to shoot arrows, they bend their tongue like a bow to shoot arrows. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil. That's their condition. They go from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Remember the last sermon that we did on chapter chapter 8 and chapter 9? Is that there's nothing else God can do because of all the options that you might think like a bomb in Gilead, get a physician in here, let's get this, let's get these people to a doctor. Well, that's not going to work. <laughs> They're far gone. Too far gone. Pretty near bomb that's going to affect the outer life. I mean, th- th- that's not an option. Uh, how about the weeping? Weeping great tears, fountains of tears. Weeping night and day for the slain of the daughter of my people. Again, that's something that you'd want to do because it's a tragic situation. But is that going to improve anything? Is that going to change anything? This is a people that are going from evil to evil. They're going from bad to worse. What if, what if God just takes a break? 
what if you know sometimes in marriage well take a break take a break uh, I've had in the desert a traveler's lodging place I might leave my people and go away from them well, what if we just take a break is that going to improve them is God going to come back and they're going to be different they're going to put away their evil they're going to put away their sins they're going to cease to be idol- adulterers and I don't no they won't for they are all adulterers a company of treacherous men who use their tongues as weapons who speak falsehood and lies they proceed from evil to evil and at the root of the whole thing is simply this they do not know me declares the Lord they're absolutely ignorant of who I am they do not know me and not only that it's not just a question they need more information about God when you look down at the words of verse 6 it's not just that they do not know me but in verse 6 it says they refuse to know me they refuse to know me so you can give them all the information in the world about God we can send Jeremiah to preach to them day and night send other messengers send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet it's simply going to do them no good these are people beyond remedy these are people that are not going to change so even when God takes them into captivity they're thinking oh, this is just a short stay eventually we're going to come back I mean we still have the temple we still have you know we have a Davidic king even though he's been taken away you know we have, we have these things that we trust in and they never turn they never repent it's a surface prayers that they make they don't leave their sins they don't turn from their transgressions they proceed from evil to evil they do not know me they refuse to know me declares the Lord shall I not punish him for these things declares the Lord shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this and yet the picture still is that it's not easy it's not easy it's necessary but it's not easy maybe one of the factors that really makes it something that is absolutely crucial that this generation be taken away that this generation experienced the, the judgment of the Babylonian invasion and the taking away captivity is that as they remain in the land it simply is a community at war with itself it's not at peace with God and it's at war with itself they're on the verge of imploding the incivility the contempt they have for one another is simply unbridled there's the absence of honesty and decency that simply creates a condition of strife and hostility that puts everyone at risk no one can trust his neighbor deception slander multiple forms of falsehood abound look at what God says to them verse 4 let everyone beware of his neighbor imagine living in a condition where the people next to you you simply have to beware of them they're out to get you they're out to hurt you they're out to trick you they're out to plunder you they're out to take your wealth they're out to take your home they're out to lie to you and deceive you beware of your neighbor put no trust in any brother can't even trust your own brother every brother is a deceiver every neighbor goes about as a slanderer everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth what do you do in a culture like that 
What do you do when a community is operating in such a way where everyone's at war with everyone else? If you like war, God's going to give you war. God's going to give you the Babylonian Empire to invade you and take you into captivity. We read in verse 5 they taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. I mean, it's really bold statements of the kind of culture that Jeremiah is addressing. And again, there's just no way to turn the tide of this thing. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. And we see a lot of things in our culture today that's appalling. We see a lot of things in our culture today that's heartbreaking. But I don't think we see things quite this this appalling where you can't even live in the neighborhood without fearing that somebody's just going to steal everything you have. And they're just going to be looking to please themselves. You can't even trust your own brother. But the fact still is that a culture we live in has never had the benefit of the knowledge of God's word. They've never had the benefit of prophets coming to them. They've never had the benefit of priestly intercession. They've never had the benefit of a God who's in their midst. They're, they're lacking all of that. I mean, in a sense, we go to this world with, of, of, of raw pagans uh, to tell them something they've never heard before, at least many of them. Many of them in our own country. There's hardly a Christian memory any longer. We have good news to tell them, and who knows what God will do? Who knows what God will do? But I mean, this is this is a people that knew it all. <laughs> this is a people that had the scriptures. This is the people that knew the law. This is a people that had the temple. This is a people that had all of these benefits, and still they're just going from evil to evil. One degree of oppression and deceit and lies and heartless dealings with others. They do not know me and they refuse to know me. And therefore God must act. God must act. Bombs and physicians from Gilead will not help. Fountains of tears will not wash away these crimes. Abandonment to a desert oasis to take a break will not bring God to come back and find that the situation has changed. God cannot allow the status quo. He must do the work of refining. Behold, I will refine them and test them. And what's the agent that brings this refining and testing? Again, it's the armies of Babylon. It's the exile that they will experience. What else can I do? Because of my people... And it goes on to again speak of the tongue and its activity in verse 8. His, his mouth speaks uh, uh, deceitfully. With his mouth he speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plays an ambush for him. Shall I not punish him for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I'll take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness. As the land simply becomes the the sphere of the bloodshed of the people. Um, 
they're laid waste so that no one passes through this land that flows with milk and honey that was to be the possession of this great multitude that no man can number soon to count the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea they count Abraham's seed that was to inhabit this land now that they're going to be taken away no one passes through the lowing of cattle is not heard there's no like domesticated animals there's no herds and flocks that they're raising in their homes the birds of the air and the beasts have fled they're gone I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins a lair of jackals I'll make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant then a great question is asked and then we move to the prose thing just for a bit move to the prose thing just for a bit the question is asked a very telling question who is the man so wise that he could understand this to whom is the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it why is the land ruined why is it laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through what's the reason for this and again it's only those who have faith that can understand God's ways with men it's only those who are submissive to God's will and hear his words and follow him that can make sense of what God is doing that this is not some forsaking of covenant with Abraham this is not forsaking some promise that he made to the nation they have forsaken my law verse 13 it's not that God has forsaken his, his, his love it's not that God has forsaken his commitment it's not that God is not being faithful to his promises it's that these who are inhabiting the land are not those to whom the promises are made the promises are made to those who are obedient to his voice who hear his words and again that's not to say that it's a works righteousness system no it's a grace system God comes in grace and saves his people God comes in grace and gives the land to his people but there is that reciprocal love and commitment that faith brings faith will lead to faithfulness again we're not saved by faithfulness we're saved by Christ but saving faith always leads to faithfulness so faithfulness is bound up in the whole matter of life with God of life in covenant with God of life in in light of the promises of God the salvation of God leads to faithfulness and these people show they've not experienced anything of the salvation of God they do not know God they don't want to know God they refuse to know God because they've forsaken my law that I set before them have not obeyed my voice or walked in accordance with them but have stubbornly followed their own hearts again they're stiff necked and hard of heart they followed their own hearts and stubbornly they do it they've gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them therefore thus says Yahweh of hosts the God of Israel I will feed this people with bitter food give them poisonous water to drink and I rather think that some of the background of this may well be the golden calf some of the language of going after the Baals and being a stubborn you know they're stubbornly stiff of neck and you can't control the you know the, the beasts heart of heart um, and there's a language there that speaks of how uh, 
you know, they worship a golden calf, they become like a golden calf. Or they become like a calf that's undomesticated, un, un that, that will not be submissive to the voice of his master. We, they were not submissive to the voice of God. They followed after the Baals. And remember how Moses took the golden calf and he destroyed it into bits and he put it into the river and made them drink it? Right? Right? That's the language here. I'll give them poisonous water to drink. Just like he did with the matter of the golden calf. They committed the like sin of the people of the wilderness generation, worshiping Baals, worshiping golden calves, becoming stiff of neck and hard of heart. And God says, I will scatter them among the nations whom they need, need, neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And what is God doing? He's simply bringing the fulfillment of his promises. And yet when he does it, he doesn't do it joyfully. He doesn't do it willingly. He does it with a heavy heart. This is his people. The people that he loves. And I think that's why you see this complexity of emotions that are going on. Um, It's necessary for him to do it. But how hard it is. Again, mercy is his delight, but judgment is his strange work. Judgment he must bring because he is God. He is faithful to the curse as well as to the promises. It's his word. And he's warned them again and again and again. He sent prophets to them over and over and over again. And they've just proved themselves like that wilderness generation. Refusing to hear God's voice, refusing to follow him. Um, deserving of the judgments that that generation received. And part of that was they did not enter the land, right? And now this people that do these things are going to be exiled from the land. God is faithful to who he is. He's a passionate God, a jealous God. A God who, when he binds himself to you in love is committed to you committed to protect committed to preserve committed to prosper his people this is why this is so alien to his nature but yet it's something that he must do because the sins of the nation have simply made it impossible for him to be that kind of God who cleaves to them in love and God really when you think about it he makes it easy for us to love him because he is just so loving. He has just so demonstrated his love. He has placarded his love towards us in that he has showed us the depth and breadth and height and the fullness of the dimensions of his love that he's revealed in Jesus that Christ died for us while we were sinners. That he has risen for us. He intercedes for us that he reigns for us that all that God does in his son he does in love for us and it says we dwell in the light of his love it seems to me love should be the very thing that continually flows forth from our hearts and if love is not there it's because we're not dwelling upon his love we're trying to just gin it up from the stuff of our own good intentions that that never works it's always responsive so that's why it's so important to live in the light of the gospel 
to ever be preaching the gospel to ourselves because it's in the gospel that is underscored and highlighted and made front and center the reality of the greatness of divine love towards us so that we would love because he first loved us we're to be imitators of God as beloved children and we're to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God it's his sacrificial love that becomes the fuel for this covenant relationship that he establishes with his people in Jesus that we might be a people who love him in return and may God help us to learn just who our God is again we see his wrath here we see his judgment here but never mistake it for malice never mistake it that God's out to get him that God just simply is just an unprincipled amount of just divine fury that's just lashing out unreasonably towards the people that don't deserve it they deserve it I mean think of what they're doing to one another think of this culture I mean if he loves that nation and part of that nation or one part is simply exploiting another oppressing the other part I mean where's God going to defend he's going to defend the people being oppressed right but then the oppressed they're turning to oppressors to others it's like everybody's involved in this hateful conduct towards one another what has God to do what has God to do there's nothing but the judgment that he will bring for the purposes of ultimately testing them refining them and bringing a chastened people back to Canaan don't put yourself in the position when God has nothing to do to you except to chasten you it's far better to live in the light of his love and part of that living in his light of his love will be discipline yeah, that we'll receive the discipline of the Lord but it won't be that we have to just be simply hogtied and brought subject to him by some kind of a horrible thing that comes into our lives and we know when that happens not that we don't suffer in this world just because it's part of living in a fallen world we know when it's a result of our our willfulness we know when God brings his chastening hand there's no question that that's not just the sort of afflictions that are common to all people but man I, I, I needed this because this is the very thing that I needed to teach me what I wouldn't learn any other way you know, we don't want to put ourselves in that position let's be teachable let's be dwelling in the light of his love and reciprocating his love knowing the great, the great reality of a, of a God who binds himself to us with a passionate commitment to protect, preserve and prosper us as his people and let's go before his presence with thankful hearts Father we're thankful we can spend time in Jeremiah and though so much of the text is difficult to pull out it's the fullness of its meaning at least to the extent that we've seen clearly these great realities of your of, of, of the greatness of your love to, to a people and the need for the people so loved by you to reciprocate that love to walk in love as you have loved us and we pray Lord you would teach us to live um, before you before the privileges, benefits, gifts 
that the gospel confers as a people filled with the gratitude of love. We ask you, Lord, to receive our praise and thanksgiving for the goodness we've seen once more on another Lord's Day, that you've helped us, you've drawn near to us, you've blessed Mike as he ministered your word at the nursing home, and even in the midst of our own sense of uncertainty coming to this passage in Jeremiah, that you have yet spoken to us. And we are thankful for this and pray that your blessing would be with us through the week before us, that we would serve you wisely, we would serve you well, we would live in the light of the Lord, we would bear fruit in every good work, and we would be increasing in the knowledge of you, our God. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.